you want something to change, it has to start with you. And if you want to make a difference in the church and how it functions in society, well, you become a pastor, of course. A pastor that is seeking to truly do good and redirect the vision of the church. A vision that fully allows inclusivity and has no negative impact on the trajectory of politics in this country. Like Reverend Denise Barnes, a woman, a member of the LGBTQ community, and someone who emigrated to the United States, she is making an impact in the church and using her faith to guide her politics at the pulpit and outside the doors of the church. This is We Need to Talk, Faith and Politics, Part 3. Rev. Denise, thank you so much for joining me on the show for this series. Hi, it's great to be with you again. (laughs) I'm really grateful that you're willing to share your experience and your views on faith and religion and how it's maneuvered its way into our political climate, not only from a female pastor perspective, but also someone who is a member of the LGBTQ community, but additionally, someone who is from the UK, because I'm really fascinated to hear how uh, religion and politics have differed from Europe to when you came over to the United States, because I imagine there's probably some similarities and some differences. But even before we get into that, I really want to know and start at the beginning of what your personal faith journey was and how you found yourself wanting to be a part of ministry, but more importantly, progressive ministry. Um, So I grew up in England where, um, you know, church and state are not separate there. So even though my parents are both atheists church and religion was a big part of my life because we had assemblies at schools my church my school was owned run by a church it was a church of england school so there was a lot of of religious education in fact it was compulsory i think till i was about 14 that i had to take it Um, and i always felt drawn to the church despite or maybe because of my parents resistance to it Um, and when i was about 12 13 14 a friend of mine was singing in a choir and a Methodist church. And she invited me to come along and sing with them, which I did. Um, And they were a pretty groundbreaking choir. It was full of young people. They had a bass guitar and a drum kit and um, run by an Australian opera singer of all things. Would put modern songs to um, change the words slightly and sing them as a choir. So things like the theme to love story and Carpenter's songs and Beatles songs um, and songs that he would also um, record. And we would travel to other churches and sing in parks in front of people. And I really found in that church a sense of community that I didn't have anywhere else and felt a sense of belonging. And then fast forward a few years, I um, I ended up living in a small village and, and, you know, a small village in England is a couple of pubs, a little shop um, and a church. And, you know, and I lived just down the street, literally from the church and got involved there with the vicar and ended up um, being on the on the equivalent of the church council um, doing the, the church news, newsletter um, and the book bulletins um teaching Sunday school um, and then his wife passed away and I ended up you know helping him out at home and just taking care of him and when the new vicar arrived after he retired um I got involved in the same way Sunday school happened at my house because we didn't have a, a hall at the church and we would walk the kids up to join in at the end of the service and I really found a home in that environment also and then I moved on and, and life took over and work and everything else and I came to terms more with my sexuality 
And, and then I was very conflicted with, well, how can I feel this call to church when the church doesn't want me? Hmm. Um, and it was a really long and difficult journey. And I didn't come out for a long time to anybody other than myself because of that, because the conflict inside of me was just so great. And, and actually, I was in Penang. I, I had left England and was traveling the world teaching English as a second language. And I was in on the island of Penang. And in a really dark moment, you know, there's nothing like living in a foreign country, not knowing the language or the food or anybody else to really do some soul searching to the point where I was like, I'm on this journey. Do I carry on because it's really tough or do I just give it up and go home and accept that role in life for myself? And yeah. it was decision time, really. And I left my belongings at the bar on the beach. They were watching them for me. And all of a sudden, the guys at the bar stood up and were shouting and pointing. And, and I turned and looked and this dolphin came up out of the water and literally stopped and sat looking at me um you know and it was like you see them in the shows doing that but this was a wild dolphin and he just hung out with me wow. a, a dolphin was my first tattoo many many years before that so they've always been like my spirit animal you know and um I took that as a real sign from God that I was on the right path and that I should go where I felt I was being called um I ended up in living in Ojai randomly in California having decided I was never going to America and um, I saw an advertisement for a local church handbell choir um, and so I thought oh that might be fun and a way to meet some people so I joined that and within a year I was um, singing in the church choir I was church council chair I was volunteering in the office and, and really that's when I answered my call to ministry and, and felt that I had got to the point where I knew God loved me. I knew God was speaking in and through me and therefore I should do something about it and not be afraid of the work that would be ahead of me. What a beautiful story. And I didn't know most of that, if not any of that. <laughs> I think that's so incredible. And I also love that you felt that you got the signs from God because so many people, you know, even if they get a little sign, they may not even go forward because they may still be afraid in some way, shape or form, or like they don't have the discernment. And I'm so glad that you did. And you made that decision. You knew, Hey, this is where I'm supposed to be. And you also got to the point where you realize, despite what the church has told you your whole life, probably that God made you the way that you are and he loves you for who you are. So I think that's so beautiful. So yeah. now that you are in full-time ministry, um, how do you feel being a member of the LGBTQ community has really made a positive impact in the people that you've ministered to? I think it's helped in a lot of ways because um, certainly in my time at Hollywood and now I'm at Crescenta Valley, my ministry with, with queer people means they have somebody who looks like them in the pulpit, um, leading worship, leading their small groups, helping them with their spirituality and being that person that they have been told always they could never be. And of course, it doesn't just, just work for those people. It works for all the people that feel they have been marginalized and, and excluded from the church because I'm an immigrant, I'm a woman, I'm all of those things that the church has said no to over time. Mm -hmm. And yet I am doing it actively and taking part in it. So it's it's made a huge difference. And, and I always think, okay, I took a long time to get here, but I needed to go through everything else I needed to go through in order to be effective in what? where my call was. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that there isn't separation of church and state in the UK, which I, that was news to me. I actually had no idea. So when you came to America and you knew that there technically was a separation of church and state, what, how did you respond to that? 
And I didn't really know what it meant um, because I never lived in it. And really my first experience of it was actually at the church in Ojai where they had an American flag behind the altar and the pastor wanted to move it. And there was uproar. There was uproar about that. And it really shocked me. I was like, why? You know, this is God's place. It, it shouldn't, there shouldn't be an American flag in the sanctuary. I mean, yes, bring it in for those times when we honor those people that have served. I'm all for that. But why would the American flag be in the sanctuary? And then I got to this church that I'm at now and the same deal. It's been moved, but it's still in the sanctuary. Apparently, if I want to get everyone to church, I move that flag and they'll all come running. <laughs> so, um, you know, my my goal is to put a rainbow flag on the other side across from it. Right. So, OK, if you want your American flag, then let's have a, a rainbow flag in there, too. Yeah. So I think. It's interesting because people are less overtly religious in England than they are here in America. So people have faith in England, I think, of a kind, but not, not necessarily associated with the Church of England and, and how it imposes itself on them. But they don't talk about it or express it in the way that it's talked about and expressed here in America. So it's much more common language here to talk about God and religion in, in whatever form you, you worship. Um, at, and yet there's supposed to be this separation. So there's a real anomaly for me between if there's this separation here, why is it talked about more here and playing a more active role in things than it does in England? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And I don't know the answer to that. It, I don't it, think anybody does. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> Were you surprised, though, by how much power the evangelical community in the states has over a lot of political decisions and and political campaigns in this country yes very very um and i don't know if it's because i wasn't in that world when i was in england that i didn't see as much of that um but it's certainly not the case now when i watch the news and i, and I talk with my friends there there's not the same level of power that the Church of England certainly doesn't wield that power in, in England. Hmm. And here, you know, and certainly over the last few years, that rise of, of the, the voice of evangelical Christianity has caused so much harm to so many more people. And, and yet again, there's this separation. So how does that work and why does it work? And um, is it the old religion of the almighty powerful God who is a an angry God that scares people because that helps you control people so therefore they they feed into that and they put their money into that because it's an easy way to keep control over people because they're frightened of of the wrath and vengeance of God. Were you exposed to much progressive theology when you were in the UK or was that something that you kind of immersed yourself into when you moved to the States? That was definitely when I moved to the States. Um, my, my parents were definitely conservative, um, so more right-wing leaning, and that's how I was raised, and certainly what I believed until I started to make my own decisions and got more educated. But I think as I read more and I got involved more and I saw the injustices in this world and experienced so many of them myself, first as a woman in a man's world, my first degree is in engineering. So, you know, I was, I was one of five women in a group mm. of 
again at my in my university so I got to see all of that and and not understand why it was any different I was as good as if not better than most of the men in my classes and yet I was considered less than I earned less than I I had less power than them so I could see that there were problems and issues but it wasn't until I I really I started my my master's at, at Claremont that I really um was able to dig and delve deeper and to understand the issues of, of other people as well as my own and how much um, oppression and harm there was done. Yeah, yeah. And that's something that I've noticed specifically with progressives in the political sphere. Just there isn't actually a lot of people that are people of faith anymore on lean, the left leaning side because of that trauma and because of that hurt and because of that pain. So I'm wondering if you think there will ever be a time where we have more progressive people of faith, or do you think that there are a lot of progressive people of faith, but they're just not the loudest voices in the room? Because right now I do feel like the loudest voices in the room are the evangelicals, right? And that's probably what's pushed so many people away. But I feel like if we had more people like you, more people of a progressive faith that let people know, hey, I believe in the God that they're claiming that they to believe in, but this is what my views are, then we might actually have more people of faith. I think the people are there. I think they, and I think this is a problem in politics as well as religion, right? In the world in general, that the liberal tending people are more gentle, less forceful. And so they don't scream and shout. They also have less money as a rule, right? And so they can't fund it. You know, so we're not prosperity gospel people. We don't tell you to give us all your money so that God will love you more and you'll get you'll have riches in heaven and on earth. That's not our theology. And so people don't give us money um, or people are giving money to all different kinds of organizations. So the spread is thinner. Um, and so we have less resources. Yeah. You know, you saying that that really is like a light bulb for me because I didn't even consider in that way, but it's very, very true. And it kind of answers the question that I consistently have in terms of mega churches and how they have millions of dollars to actually give to political campaigns, which they really shouldn't be, but they do anyway. But it's the truth. It's that the progressive churches are usually smaller. They don't have like these grandiose services and all of this stuff. So they don't have the money to give. That is such a valuable point. It's very, very true. It's unfortunate, though, because it's like that's where the good work is. And you wish that you had those marketing dollars to be able to push for that service that they're trying to do. Exactly. We need to reach the people and we need to find a way to do it effectively. Um, And one of the projects I'm working on right now, actually, is a mobile church solution. Mm. Um, We get a truck. We're going to call it the shift truck. And and, um, it's developed out of a, a retreat that the Connectional Ministries team was on. Um, And that truck say we take worship to um, a homeless population, right? Because, and we take communion to Skid Row, for example, right? So they get a chance to to share in communion. But on that truck also are clothes, wash kits, um, a licensed clinical social worker, somebody from LA housing and and a, a medical practitioner, right? Who can see to their immediate health concerns so we take the whole service and we take it to the people where the ministry is needed it's beautiful then i think we'll get funding for that you know and that will generate the the more you see it the more you'll do it and and there are so many ways of, of implementing that across anything you know we can be the people that go to yuma when they release the asylum seekers and bring them to los angeles where we house them in our churches from where they go to their sponsors or whatever so we can do the whole thing um And it's all ministry and it's all the church and it's all being able to tap into that spirituality that people have found during COVID 
that isn't expressed by organized religion. Yes, I think that's such a beautiful idea. And I think that that is really the core of what Jesus was about anyway, was being on the streets and bringing love and bringing ministry to people. You don't have to be inside the walls of a church to have church. And I think that that's another thing that a lot of people forget, especially when you're looking at the scope of mega churches, for example, they just think that you have to be. And that was the whole issue during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's how that all became political and you know, all of it because people thought they had to be inside of a church. And I just, I completely disagreed with that. Yeah. So I love that idea. Yeah, I do too. I mean, churches for me is walking the dogs in the park. That's church for me, you know, in my time with God when there's nobody else around and, and, and it's different for so many other people in terms of what they do and how they connect with God. So when you think of the kingdom of God, you know, and for a lot of people that don't know what the kingdom of God is, I'd love for you to also explain that in layman terms as well. But do you think the church fails to keep that in mind when they get involved in politics? Yeah, very much so. So for me, the kingdom of God is love here on earth, right? The God, the, the world that God created out of love and in love and with love. And that's how we should be. We should be carrying on that work by loving everybody and working, working with everybody to make sure that everybody has access to the same stuff, the same education, the same chances, the same being safe walking down the street. You know, everybody should have that feeling. And so when a church gets involved in politics, to us, to, in terms of funding it, I mean, I think I'll come back to that, right? But when a church gets involved in politics, it can, if it's not on the side of compassion and, and equality for all, then yeah, it's not doing what Jesus um, called us to do, which is to love everyone. A few years ago, Diana Butler Bass um, came down and spoke to us at conference and she talked about um, Zacchaeus, which I say wrong because you say Zacchaeus, I think, but, mm -hmm. um, and she told Zacchaeus to get, he Jesus said to Zacchaeus, get down from the tree. And what Diana Butler Bass said was what he was saying was, Get out of the systems that you're perpetuating. Come down off the pyramid of power that the Romans have, have instilled and join the people at the bottom and work for equality at the bottom. And that stays with me, that message of get out of those systems. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's interesting how often words are misinterpreted, <laughs> you know, and, and I've really seen that the most when we're talking about the intersection between faith and politics, because a lot of words in the Bible have been misconstrued and reworded to fit certain political narratives. And that's what to me is the most frustrating, because I think if we're actually truly following what Jesus called us to do and what God called us to do, our political climate would be way different. And I just talked about this on um, the first episode of this podcast with uh, with Cornell West, that if, if we actually followed what the teachings of Jesus were, there wouldn't be, he said, you know, there wouldn't be poverty. We wouldn't have people living on the street. There wouldn't be wealth hoarded by such a small percent of people. And from your perspective, when you see people kind of buy into, you know, prosperity gospel and the words of specifically these mega churches, why do you think we as a society have become so easily brainwashed and easily fall into the traps of thinking that we don't have to do those things as Christians? 
I know that's a big question. Yeah, it's a huge question. <laughs> and, and, you know, I don't know the answer other than it starts real early. Mm. Um, so it's what we're told all our lives. You know, I think if I, if I framed it in the terms of my queer experience, right, people of my generation and older, we grew up being told that queers were bad. We were sinful. We were, you know, an abomination. We were all of those things. It's really hard to change that when you get to 60 or 70 years old. It's the message you've been given all your life. Um, so, and I think that's one of the ways the church does it. The, those prosperity churches, they get them young and they brainwash them and they give them good stuff, right? They give them um, community, which is lacking in so much of the world. They give them great youth experiences, which mm-hmm. they keep them safe. And all of that is good. So they get this good feeling about being a part of it while they're being fed these messages of this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. So I think that's how it works. Um, And I think, you know, the older generation perpetuates that down, because if you listen to the younger people today, most of them, it's not a thing. You know, it's not a thing. They just have they have a conversation openly and freely. My kids at my church, my young people, sorry, at my church, who took (laughs) they use this language like it's, you know, like I'm going to the shops today. You know, I mean, literally, it's that matter of fact, the things that they're talking about. And so. I think that we are going to break it, but I think it's going to take a long time to break it. And, and you know, as as we, we get more educated, we get more out in the world, we see more, therefore we learn more. And those deep pockets where the world doesn't intrude very much on that small community life, how do we break that cycle and let them see that there is more to this and there is different perspectives outside? Yes, 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 yes. So you, your main ministry, well, your ministry in general is settled within the Methodist church. Mm -hmm. How did you settle being with Methodist and what responsibility do you feel the Methodist denomination has in the society as being leaders in terms of social justice? I think for me, the call to to be a Methodist has always been the fact that um, it was all about social justice. I mean, John Wesley started the Methodist movement because people couldn't go to church. It was as simple as that. And he made it accessible for everybody. And he took it to them. You know, he went to the tin mines and to the farmer's fields and and he created systems for those people who didn't feel they were welcome in church to be able to have a church, you know, and he wasn't creating a church. He was creating a movement. And um, I think that foundation, that basis for me is what has always spoken to me um, and that we do it by by holy conferencing, by small groups, by worship, by prayer, by Bible study, by all of those things. It's not just one route into it. Um, And I think as Methodists, we need to go back to that more. Those are our roots. Those are who we really are. And instead of getting so wound up in such a large corporate organization that we are now where we've lost that message for social justice on the ground that's what we should be going back to and and I really think that um certainly here in Calpac in our conference that's what we're working towards like let's not worry about what they all do a decision will be made we'll go one way or the other let's do the work we're here to do and stop worrying and spending all our time and energy on that. We've had these conversations before about just the church being divided because mm-hmm. of politics. Mm-hmm. And it it's frustrating because I feel when I look at just different denominations and even with conferences and seeing, you know, even voting on LGBTQ rights within the church, it's like, how are we still having this conversation? Right. 
you know, and it has to be exhausting, especially for you being in a leadership position in ministry, feeling that even because there are people within the Methodist denomination that still probably don't believe that you even have the right oh, yeah. to be yeah. a pastor. Yeah. And I know? get, I get messages to that effect very often. You know, my social <sighs> media is, um, yeah, there's probably at least two or three a week that come through that tell me I'm, I'm a fallacy or I shouldn't be doing ministry and that I'm doing harm to people. I'm teaching the wrong message. Which is crazy because what you're choosing to do is love. So it's like, right. I never understand that argument yeah. when people come at you. It's like, well, what are you doing by sending me this message? Exactly. Yeah. Cause that's what Jesus would do. Right. Is reach out and, you know, so I don't, I don't give them any, any food. I don't take any notice of them. And I just carry on what I'm doing because I know I'm changing lives and I know I'm helping people find a connection with God. And that's what my call is. Um, and that's what I'm working on. Do you think as we move forward that the lines of American culture and Christian culture that have become so blurred will ever kind of be separate again? Um. That's a hard one because America is so big and there are so many different cultures and so many different mixtures of cultures that I think it might happen in some places and not in others, you know, so that's going to slow the roll. Definitely. It's like, you know, even in California, we're supposed to be this progressive, wonderful state. And we, you know, we have all these lax laws and we're all liberal over here, but that's not the case. We have churches here that don't believe that LGBT people should be in ministry in the Methodist denomination. We have a hugely diverse conference of people, and yet we don't do the work that reflects who these people are really, truly. We're really good at representation, right? You know, so well, let's put a person of color in there and let's put a queer person in there and we'll have an immigrant down here. And oh, we've got a woman as a senior pastor in a big church. You know, this, aren't we awesome? But none of that means anything if the ministry is not effective and it doesn't truly reflect the work we do doesn't reflect. That yeah, That's yeah. the work we are called to be looking at right now. And I think if we can do that, then we blur that line and then we get, you know, that we separate them a bit more. Mm -hmm. But it can't just be the Methodists. And I think this is the way we're going forward. So a lot of the work I'm doing in my other role, which is um, Associate Director of Justice and Compassion Ministries for the conference, is looking at. How do we connect what we're doing with each other, first of all, and then with other churches and outside agencies that are doing similar work? So I'm reaching out to organizations like LA Voice and people like that to see where can we work together? Where can we combine it? Where can, where can a church go that a church has a, a new ministry, they've decided they wanna do um, something with homeless kids? Who, who can resource that? who can help them with funding, who can tell them what's already being done in their area, who can tell them what's missing in their area, where do they go to to get that information and create an effective ministry. Um, so that's what I'm excited about. That's what I'm energized about. And I think if we can concentrate on that, people will start to see us as a different entity than something that's just about power and control. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's the sad thing is that what it's become, it's become about power and control, which are also opposite of what Jesus stood right, for. Right. And of yeah. course, you know, when, whenever you remove something from power, it, there's backlash. And we're, we're living that right now. Right. Mm -hmm. So we had Obama, we got Trump. Now we're coming back to Biden, but there's all this backlash and there's these people fighting because they're losing their power and control in, in, in their perception. They're not losing it. It's just being redistributed to everybody. 
but they're, they're, in their eyes, they're losing it. Mm-hmm. The church, of course, is involved in that because the church became this monolithic organization that had so much power, control and money. Um, and if the church doesn't find a way to reframe themselves because they're not going to have the power, control and money, then it will go. So when you go to vote, how do you use your faith and your beliefs to cast your ballot? Mm, great question. Um, number one, I talk with my wife because she is so clued up on everything and has opinions on everything. So I get, you know, I get a lot of information from her, particularly about stuff here that I don't understand. Like, so I've only actually voted once in this country because I only became a citizen this year. So, and that was on the recall of Gavin Newsom. That wasn't a tough decision really for me. Right. But I always pray about it. I never make a decision without doing my own research. And and I ponder on it. And it's part of my daily walks and chats with God that I talk these things through. Um, But I always look at what is the best option that's available for the people? What speaks best to most? And that tends to be the way I go. If I can see that this this relieves the pressure on some, but it puts pressure on others, then I have to think about that, you know, and how we're going to go. So, you know, it's like the the homeless initiative in L.A. right now. Great. We've got this money we're spending on it. And they've got this thing called Housing First, which is awesome. Right. Except Housing First doesn't work because people aren't assessed for how well they're going to be able to cope when they're given a home. So. Somebody moves into it to a, um, a dwelling, but they don't have the skills and there's no one to help them with the skills. They don't have access to services and there's no one to help them get access to services. So that situation fails and they become homeless again or depressed because they're not coping or in financial difficulties. You know, so Housing First is a great initiative, but it's got to be everything first. Like, let's give them the whole package and make people there to serve them and help them and keep them safe and off the streets and thriving and i think maybe it's very true maybe possibly step in and help out in that role somehow you know that's yeah and i think that if we are voting with our faith and our beliefs which are believing in the teachings of jesus christ that's what we have to do right it's about being selfless right yeah yeah exactly yeah And, and there's that love again you know it's like who gets the greatest amount of love from this and who needs the greatest amount of love from this, whatever it is you're deciding on and, and who can deliver that in the best way for the most people. And once you've got that done, it's easy to figure out who, who you want to do what you want to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Rev Denise, thank you so much for chatting with me about this. I love your perspective, your views. I love everything that you're doing. You are needed and I hope you know that and um, I appreciate you so much. Can you let everybody know where you are actually a pastor? I know you said it once, but say it one more time just in case anyone would like to come to an inclusive, affirming church community. Absolutely. I'm at Crescenta Valley United Methodist Church, which is in Montrose. Um, So it's on the edge of Burbank, Pasadena, Glendale. It's all around that area. We have a great jazz band and a really lovely, warm, welcoming, wonderful, faith-filled community. We would love to see you. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Of course. And to the listeners, we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.